Welcome to Below the Line, where we talk about working in Hollywood from the crew perspective. My name is Skid. I was an assistant director in Hollywood for the better part of eight years, and now I'm not. For today's episode, rather than focus on a specific film, we're going to talk more generally about the production assistant experience. My first two guests are the creator and a current trainer for an LA-based program called PA Bootcamp. Lee Panessa and Chuck Canzaneri, welcome to Below the Line. Thanks for having us. Hi, Skid. Welcome, guys. Glad you're on the show. Lee, let's start with you. Perusing your INDB page, it says you're known for Transformers, Spider-Man, Ant-Man, and X-Men First Class, which makes it sound like you've been specializing in superhero movies. What's that about? I like men. (laughs) Yeah, because it was also Anchorman, Pee-wee Herman. Pirates Man. No, that didn't happen. No, it didn't have a man in it. So Pee-wee Herman did. All right, so you're choosing your films based on the title of film, I think. Uh, but go. then how do you explain uh, Seabiscuit, which Lee, I think is where we met? That's a very good question. And I don't have a very good answer. From the early days. From the early days before you, before you specialized. Well, glad you're here, Lee. Uh, we'll be talking more about your experiences as we go on through the show. Chuck, you and I worked together on Arrested Development when I was a DGA trainee, and you were the key set PA. And those were the days. Well, what do you remember best about those days? Um, I would say that was probably, possibly, but not, not, not definitely second to maybe The Office as far as working on a show that definitely had a, a cult following and a popularity to it that you could notice off the set if you talked about what it was you were working on. You know that 90% of the time when people ask what you're working on, you're like, oh, they're not going to know what this show is at all or it hasn't aired yet or it's not something that people are talking about. But Arrested Development was definitely one that gained more and more of a following. Even when it went off the air, people would would catch on to what that show was doing. Indeed. Yeah, Chuck, I agree with you. That's absolutely true. Uh, Also joining us today in our fourth chair, someone who doesn't have a lot of recognizable credits at this point, Christopher Brooks. You are relatively new to the Hollywood game and a recent graduate of PA Bootcamp. Chris, welcome. That is... Thank you, yes. Now, Chris, your INDB resume, as I alluded to, is understandably sparse, with a couple of shorts and a film that's in post-production now. Tell us a little more about where you are in your Hollywood career. Um, Well, I just graduated at the end of last year, and I've started to be doing freelance production work ever since then. Well, Chris, let's use that as a transition into talking about first jobs as production assistants. First, a little context, and you guys feel free to weigh in on this. Production assistant as a job title can mean a lot of different things. We have office production assistants. We have set production assistants. Each department can have a production assistant. Basically, in general, it would be fair to summarize by saying this is someone who's going to do a lot of work helping out and not making a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, it's... I mean, it's an entry level position basically to get you on set or in the office and expose you to what it is the other departments are doing so that you can figure out where it is that you want to be. We call it window shopping. Please say more about that. So when you're getting to set, you could actually see the departments working. But when you're getting trained or when you're even as a trainee focusing on graduating or finishing, you don't actually get to see what the other departments are doing. But when you get to an AFI show, when you get to a short or a USC or UCLA show, you actually get to see props doing their thing, camera doing their thing, grip doing their thing. So then you think to yourself, okay, this is the department I'm most interested in. So what do I do next? 
now that I'm a CPA and I'm exposed to these departments, I'm going to go talk to them and see how to get into that department. So it's window shopping. That's a good, that's a good point, Leon, that as far as getting that, that set experience. And I think there's two sides of that coin though, in the sense that um, on one side, uh, the necessary qualifications are not that high, but on the other side, there are lots and lots of folks who are using this as an entry level position. So it can be hard to find that kind of work at the same time. Yeah, qualifications are not that high, but if you make one small mistake and the ADs think it's a big mistake, you're done. Easily replaceable. Well, let's talk some about those mistakes we made on our early work. Chris, why don't we start with you? What was the first PA work that you did? Uh, the very first PA work I did was actually for some indie shorts that my uncle was a part of when I was in high school, and I was constantly making mistakes, like you know, tripping up on things and making it difficult for the rest of the crew. But I didn't really get fired because I knew someone who was in it, like my uncle. So just kind of a, a nuisance on set, I guess. <laughs> what was your uncle doing for this indie uh, show? He, he, he's an actor by trade, um, but he writes, directs like some of his own projects on the side. So it's kind of hard to get fired uh, for those shorts, but yeah. Shucker Lee, what about you guys? Where'd you start out? I started out on a film called Bad Guys that I don't think ever got any sort of release. It starred Michael Madsen. It filmed up in Tehachapi, which is an hour and a half outside of LA. And I think that was the advantage. Had it not been for how far we were from being able to replace me, I'm pretty sure I would have been replaced day one, if not day two. <laughs> Uh, everything from not knowing uh, what the first AD was expecting of me and being way too much of a nuisance around the set to forgetting to break the lead actress for lunch so that they had to end up buying her a very expensive, especially on our budget, steak lunch. And we had to wait while she had that lunch before we could film with her again. <laughs> that uh, you probably cost more than uh, uh, what they had paid for you to be on the film if they were paying you at all were you getting paid for this job Chuck it was originally $50 a day flat rate but the show was such a disaster that they agreed to double everybody's money so I was by the end making $100 a day and we were filming six day weeks so it was 600 for the week by that point Lee, how about you? Where did you start out in this business? I started on a show called, the working title was Ox and the Eye. Then it was released as Good Luck. Okay. It was shooting in Coos Bay, Oregon. <laughs> and there ain't no production crew in Coos Bay, Oregon. They flew me out. They put me up. They made me in charge of the radios, all right? I've never seen a radio before in my life at this point. They put me on a lockup, which I did not know what it was. They had me lock up the door that lead from base camp to set. When the radio spoke, I didn't know it was a radio. I went wandering through base camp saying to anyone there, hello? Hello, I heard my name. Does anybody, does anybody need me? This is Lee. Can I help you? And I left the radio behind. I left the radio at the door that led to set. And that was my first show, and I'll never forget it. Because they paid me per diem. They flew me out. They hired me. What idiots. 
<laughs> so, Lee, they flew you from Los Angeles up to Oregon. Was your uncle working on this show as well? Like, how did you manage to get a gig like that? I don't know. I have no idea. I used what was known as the trades, the Hollywood Reporter, or was it that, the, the Variety? And I submitted a letter saying, please hire me. And they flew me out. They put me up. I'll never forget it. They paid me per diem, these idiots. <laughs> and I showed up. In the interview, they interviewed me first. I think it was the first AD and the UPM interviewed me. And I showed up in a suit because the job said production assistant. It didn't tell me who I was assisting. So I had a visual of what an assistant looked like. I showed up in a suit and they hired me. Well, you know, you really, it sounds like you really stumbled into that one. But when you talk I, about- I don't know how it happened, honestly. When you talk about finding first work through the trades, um, what around what year is this, Lee? I had just turned 18. So without revealing age, I have no idea. How but it was that? before 2000. Before <laughs> the 2000s, 19-something. You know, when you talk about finding work through the trades, uh, similarly, when I came to Los Angeles, we didn't have the widespread, I think, access through the internet of all the film work that was going on. And I, I also picked up the trades and wrote letters to everyone I could find, every project that was going on, that uh, trying to find work. And my first gig ended up being a freebie called The Contract, which filmed for three weeks. They were paying a small amount of money to their keys, but then the rest of the departments up and down were staffed with um, production assistants working for free. And so I had joined the assistant directing group. Now, I had a little bit of experience before coming on, not so much with film. I had been in the Air Force for five years before coming to Hollywood. And so I understood a little bit about the radio. I understood a little bit about how sets were supposed to work. But again, still learning it on the fly and working for free. Um, it's also, as an aside, where I got my nickname for film because there were six or seven Robs, Bobs, or Roberts working on the contract. And Skid was a high school nickname that I pretty much choked off through my time in the, the military and then through college. Um, but uh, on day two, I said, why don't you call me Skid? Because when I was working for free, I needed something to sort of distinguish myself that people could remember from the rest of the group. And from there, Smart. it stuck. I've never heard anybody refer to you as anything other than Skid. Well, there you go. There you go. So what sort of, we've talked some about how difficult it was for our, for our early shows. What sort of lessons learned or experiences do you have that sort of drove that home? Well, you talked about your mistakes with the radio. That's hilarious. Chuck or Chris, what about your early experiences? Uh, for me, just generally not knowing what was happening at any given time, just looking around in complete confusion. <laughs> um, that was, that was the most difficult, I guess, or, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could say not knowing exactly what it is that our department does. Like you can see grips and you see their truck of equipment, yeah. you know, props and their truck of equipment and electric and their truck of equipment. But what does an assistant director do? Where's our not, truck of equipment? Yeah. They're not a personal assistant to the director. What, what is it that we are supposed to do besides locking up doors whenever we're rolling? What about everything else? You know, Chuck, you bring up a point, even the idea of locking up. If you're new to a set, you might know what that means. And for our listeners who haven't been on set, it basically means that when the camera's rolling, we need to make sure that what we call bogeys, folks won't walk in either through a door onto a set or crossing a street into the shot. And 
even just the skill of doing that is not something that you necessarily think of as something that's self-evident. And even further than that, if you hear like, we're going to roll on room tone, well, that's a specific type of lockup that's more difficult than a regular lockup where you can't even make your way across the room to tell the grips to be quiet. So if you hear room tone and you've never been on a set before, you don't know what it is you're supposed to be doing. Exactly. Because with room tone, they're just trying to capture a little bit of how the room sounds without any other noise. They can use the splice in or to uh, cross-reference on sound later. But yeah, there can be no sound on set or it will ruin that take. What other challenges have people faced or funny stories that you can laugh about now, but at the time, maybe not so much? Well, Christopher, have you handled the radios before? Because I know me and Lee just said that we both did it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the first AFI, I was doing an AFI thesis, and first day they were like, there was maybe four PAs, and they looked at me and said, you're going to do radios. And I was like, okay. And I was a little nervous, but because of PA boot camp, I, I knew what to do, so I figured it out fine. But, like, no problems, didn't lose any radios. Um, so, yeah, but it was a little nerve-wracking. Yeah, I was say, isn't it still kind of amazing that they'll usually take the PA with the least amount of experience on the regular shows and they'll hand you 50 to 150 radios, which are very expensive. And there's the single chargers and the six bank chargers and the spare batteries and the various headsets. And they're saying, we want all of this returned back to us by the end, knowing that there's a transportation department and transportation needs their set of radios that you're actually not going to get back because they're just going to include theirs in the package when it all goes back. And then in the moment on the day, oh, let's make sure there's radios in all the picture cars. And then the stunt people want radios. And then, oh, we wrapped that stunt person an hour ago. And now you have to try to get that radio back. And you're the person, like I said, generally with the least amount of experience being put in charge of this rather large financial responsibility. It does fall, I think, to the bottom of the totem pole uh, because it's not a thing people want to do. I've managed quite a few radio packages in my day, um, learning to track them and use color coding and checking in every day or every week to make sure you still knew where they were. It's a lot to learn. It's a lot to learn. Well, you know, Chris, you referenced learning at PA Bootcamp. So let's take a little bit aside and talk about the program that you guys have set up. Lee, you're the creator of the program. When did you found it? What's the story of the origin, if you will? Story of origin, 2005, I was less staff and more day playing. And I started to notice that a lot of our day players were either green or political. And we had no choice at the time of who we had. Our AD team had no choice. So I kept thinking, why should they suffer the way that everybody else did when there's so many of us pros out there who have become different departments from set PAing and different departments from office PAing, and we have the knowledge, why don't we stop what we're doing for slick seconds and try to train them? Oh, well, that's because we're still shooting and we don't have the time. So when we talk about folks being green, obviously talking about them being new, when we talk about someone being a political, we're talking about it's a favor or a connection with somebody else on set who wants them to have some sort of experience much. And Chris, to keep going back to your experience, when your uncle was on the film, you were there as a political. You were sort of protected by his position, but not because you brought any experience to it. Correct, yeah. Poor Chris. <laughs> okay, so I thought to myself, why don't we train them? Instead of, why don't we watch them make the mistakes that we did? 
And then I started talking to ADs about that and they all said, no, we don't do that. We don't do that. We don't, we don't train them. Why would we do that? They have to learn the way that we learned. Sink or swim. You don't get to train them, Lee, and be nice. You learn the way we all learned. So I said, screw this. I'm training them. And you also found a way to train them and not be nice. I did. Yeah. I don't know nice. what that means. What does I'm it mean nice. to you train them but not nice? One of the earliest things that I picked up on when I heard about the PA boot camp, one of the first things that appealed to me was that we were not training for the nice ADs. We were not, it's not a training program for the easy shows. It's to prepare you for the shows where either it's 150 million and there's a lot of money being spent. And so everybody's under pressure, especially everyone above you, or it's a $200,000 budget, in which case every penny counts. And then there's a lot of pressure from those that are above you. And so for the most part, from the directors to the producers, the assistant directors are just all under a tremendous strain to try to make each and every day. And that does wear on their patience and their tolerance, particularly when they're working 14 to 18 hours a day, five days or even six days a week. So Lee's whole idea is I don't see why I need to train them for the easy shows, why I need to train them for the nice assistant directors. I need to train them for the, for the really tough ones. And that's, and that's where the boot camp mentality came into play. Now let's revisit that. Lee, did you just say that the skids are the tough ones? That you're training them <laughs> no, no, I didn't say that. I would, no, never. I would never, ever say that. Well, I would be surprised to hear that people thought it was tough being on my shows, particularly. I would think that uh, uh, on, a, on a show of mine, we, we weren't screaming at people all the time as a general rule, uh, at, least that I, at least the way that I, through my memory, recall it. But that being said, I did have high standards for what I would expect. I expected things to run military, uh, that people would know what their jobs were, radios, lockups, things like this, that people would be professional. And if they didn't know it right away, they would learn it pretty quick. So I would see that coming in with those kind of lessons would be beneficial on any show. Well, you Lee, you can, quip on, you can quip on working with me, or if there was some time when I yelled at you, please tell that story. <laughs> That's the thing. You have to be demanding. What, what are you going to do? Turn to your first and be like, don't worry about it. We'll get to that. It's fine. Calm down. Take a pill. You can't. So you have to be demanding. You have to get it done. And we have to understand the temperament in which you have to work because someone's waiting on you. But nobody ever says that to a PA. They just say, here, go do this. And then when it's not done in what they consider a timely fashion, they take their head off. I heard on your earlier Seabiscuit episode that you would talk about some of those big days where you had a lot of people in the stands. And these are all the people who have to be in period costume. And as the ADs, it's like when we're ready for the background in 30 minutes, you want enough background to be working with them in 30 minutes. And in order for that to happen, you have to feel confident that the PAs that are behind the stadium, checking everyone in, getting everyone dressed, getting everyone propped up, are doing their job so that when you say, okay, let's bring in the background, you don't just get a half dozen people showing up. When we were on Seabiscuit, we had the hardest time getting them to stay in the seats. They wouldn't stay in the seats, but we didn't know where camera was looking. So they would get up and they'd walk behind the stands. They'd go to Crafty, which was at a far distance. So it's not like they were coming back anytime soon. The bathrooms were at a far distance. So again, not like they were coming back anytime soon. 
and we kept losing the background. And, and that was the biggest issue. So all of us, the PAs who weren't on the track or on the opposite side of the track, had to keep going behind the stands and finding these background. Wasn't easy. Well, let's take the opportunity to dive a little deeper onto what you guys are teaching at PA Bootcamp. Tell us a bit more about how the program's structured and basically what someone can expect when they sign up. We start out with a simulation of a production meeting, and we use that as an overview to cover what happens in pre-production. So that as an office PA, you know what's going on during pre-production, but also as a set PA, you understand that you're not around for any of this, but you're expected to know a lot about the decisions that are made in pre-production. That leads into the paperwork. So one-liner, day out of day, shoot schedules, things that people who have never been on a set wouldn't know one type of paperwork from another, which builds into ultimately the call sheet, which we spend a lot of time on. What information do you find on a call sheet and how can you find that information quickly? Front of a call sheet, back of a call sheet. We get into all that. That's Chuck, Chuck let's spend a little bit, let's go a little deeper dive on the call sheet because a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with that. Every day, there's a list of what is expected to be done the next day. What time actors show up, what time crew shows up, what equipment you need. So let's speak about why that's such a critical piece of paperwork on a set. So the call sheet is the daily document of what it is we are attempting to do on that specific day and the tools that we will have to use it, being which everything from which actors are coming in and when they are coming in to when stunts is going to be ready, to if we have uh, animals, when the animals are going to be there, when grip, electric, camera, hair, makeup is expected, what scenes we are shooting and in what order we are shooting them in. So sometimes even there will be a special prop that's needed, but the scene that the prop is going to be used in is going to be later in the day because the prop might not actually be ready until sometime after lunch it's always this map that the first AD comes up with this plan of how they're going to film a particular amount of pages, particular amount of scenes before the day is done and hopefully get it done in a reasonable amount of time. Reasonable being 12 to 14 hours. We call it the production Bible because there's no higher production related document that is more powerful. We're not talking about individuals like, no, my paycheck is more important than your call sheet. We're talking about production's Bible, not you as an individual crew member's Bible. So the call sheet is Bible because it's the only document made daily telling us every day what we're doing. Everything else is the entire show's run. That's what the breakdown is for the one-liner day-to-day. And Chris, is it fair to say you didn't know much about this paperwork before your PA bootcamp experience? Yeah, I I'd heard of a call sheet but i had no idea what it entitled and how much information is on there and how important it is now at this stage of reviewing all the paperwork through a mock production meeting is this the first day of boot camp is this the first hour of boot camp how far are we into the program at this point this is the morning the morning is probably the closest the boot camp comes to feeling like a school because we have to lay down that foundation So it is a lot of, we hand out a lot of paperwork to go with this, but it is a lot of us lecturing to them as they follow along reading the paperwork so that they can see what information is on a day out of days, which is the cast and when they're working, when they're on hold, when they're finishing, 
and what's on what's the difference between what's on a one liner and what's on a shoot schedule and ultimately how all that information is used to create that daily call sheet. We make them do the work, them meaning quote unquote what we call campers. We make them follow along with us on two script pages. We put their brain into a first AD's brain to where each department has to start focusing on what necessity they anticipate to use and then how you, first AD in that role, would have to remind them each day that those items that we talked about months ago have to be working on this day. But we make them do the work. We don't talk about it much. They have to highlight. We give them placards that assign them departments to where their focus should be. So it's hands-on. It is not school. And so then do you give them a 42-minute lunch before you go into the afternoon? Yes, 42 we minutes. do, <laughs> We actually, we actually cheat on that. It is a half-hour lunch, and it is a walk away. So it <laughs> totally violates the rules in that it is both a half-hour and a walk away. But we do allow them to finish eating while we continue with uh, whatever is left over before we can get into what I call the fun and games of the afternoon. The way me and Lee divide it up, she is the boot and I am the camp. So when there are activities like the production meeting, like some of the fun quizzes and games that we do, I tend to run those. And when it's more of the, you need to learn this and here's why, and there's money flying out the window because you don't know what you're doing, that's her end of the boot camp. I, we do try to keep it as authentic production related as possible. So we try to give them what they would anticipate when they get to set. It's just hard to do because obviously we're not on set. We are on a stage though. So Chris, to test your PA bootcamp knowledge, can you offer our listening audience a little bit of an explanation about some of the rules around lunch? Why we joked about 42 minutes or what some of the other options might be? Uh, well, 42, I'd assume you're talking about grace, which is when an AD asks for an extra 12 minutes. Uh, to finish a shot or something, and then and then we go to a lunch. And meaning we've delayed the lunch start for 12 minutes, but we're not going to award penalties for starting yeah. late. Yeah. If you go over, then there's penalties. So I guess that's good for crew. <laughs> you know, we talk about how things are run on set, the sort of timing around lunch and what time you start and what time you finish. These are all very critical aspects of what the assistant director with the help of their production assistants have to run on set. Everybody's paid in uh, one-tenth increments, six-minute counts. And so everything you count, every click, if you will, into a penalty or an extended lunch or towards the end of the day, this can all get very stressful. And lunch is sort of where it all comes together and people are hungry at the same time. Yeah, it's supposed to be fed six hours after crew call. And if you're not, you're going to collect that meal penalty violation, all those people who have a union, meaning not us. But there you get to a time where you're almost done with the scene or you're almost done with an actor and the director just needs one or two more takes and then they can be done. And you want to come back from lunch not having to do the very tail end of a scene. You want to come back with your afternoon work, start into something fresh and new. So they have this grace period, which is 12 minutes and very rigid, that we can get what we need to. I think it used to be that you could only get whatever shot it was that you were working on. But it has changed now that you can get whatever you can in that 12 minutes. Meaning, if the director only needs like five minutes 
to get the scene and then he's good and he's done. You can take the next seven minutes moving all the equipment over to wherever the next location is going to be or even running a rehearsal for the next scene. Just so long as you break in that 12-minute amount of time, there won't be the meal penalty that's incurred upon the union crew. Hey, Skid, wasn't it once that we couldn't break setup? We had to stay in the same setup? There was at one time where grace was interpreted that way, where you had to finish the shot. You could only finish literally the shot you were filming. And you had to have started filming before you called grace as well. If you were set up but hadn't filmed, you did not have the right to call grace. Truth is, I'm not sure to what degree that was a formal rule and to what degree that may have been sort of practice. I think they formalized it, Chuck, as you said, to be much looser sense, although I haven't had to deal with that in a long time. Good for you. (laughs) Yeah, when I want to break for lunch now, I just break myself for lunch. Um, So when you were talking about earlier about the transition from camp to boot, I'm assuming that in the afternoon, they're getting a little more of the boot. Lee, is that when you take over on the training? Oh, no, quite the opposite. The afternoon is when they get more of the camp. Uh, The afternoon is when we get into more general, the PA mindset. So we have terminology, which we've been talking the set lingo all morning, but we actually have a full-on activity where before we give them the 11-page, 300, I think, nine terms now, terms document of stuff that they hear commonly around set. And we get into what I think is the most interesting part of the PA boot camp, which is something we call the don'ts, which is a lot about having the right attitude and how to handle when things go bad, how to handle when you make mistakes so that it doesn't become an issue to where they can't have you on their set anymore or that the other PAs that you've been working with and making contacts with become hesitant to bring you on to their next show that they go on to afterwards. So it's just a lot about how to handle when you don't know what it is you're supposed to do, you're supposed to be doing, how to handle when you make a mistake, how to take that with dignity, how to handle it when there's 20 PAs today, but we only need 10 PAs tomorrow. And so essentially 10 people are going to no longer be continuing on the show. And we've seen sometimes where people act like these paychecks, like they're living hand to mouth and they need these paychecks for their livelihood. But in truth, just because we only need 10 tomorrow, it doesn't mean next week we're not going to need 15 and then we'll bring some of those other people back on. That's part of the nature of working independently in these shows. As far as the, the don'ts, like I know uh, some of the big ones were don't say action, like when you're echoing out things and don't say no. And I've seen other PAs do those and it makes them look bad and makes me look good. So uh, yeah, it's nice. <laughs> it's nice when that, when you're aware of those don'ts and, makes you by default you just look better by not doing those things so it's good so if we get through that in the afternoon with the don'ts is that day one and i meant to ask how many days is pa boot camp it is a two-day program nine to five both days now after that we're basically ready to start getting into advanced pa training but we don't do the radio training which is the most important part until Sunday morning. So usually on Saturday afternoon, we finish things out by talking about 
being in charge of the production kits and building the production kits. That's not all of the time. A lot of times it depends on our timing and the size of the class. But usually we end our Saturday with building the production kits and then pushing the call. Now on both of those, so first let's talk about production kits. It's the, all the paperwork that assistant directors bring with them to the set. Or, would you, or are you even teaching them more than that? No, it's that list that when you're going to be in charge of the kits, the uh, second AD or the second staff kit will hand you a list and say, I want to have all of this in the kit boxes that we have to make sure it's with us all the time. And some of it people will be familiar with, start work, time cards. By now they've seen the schedules. But then there's Coogan forms and accident reports. And this usually is their first chance to see what an exhibit G is, which is essentially an actor's time card. And so we show them how they'll get handed a list that doesn't have a specific order to it. And then we see what order they come up with because they will actually take, we'll set up a mock production office and accounting office and they'll have kit boxes and folders and tags and they will actually build up the kits and we see what order they choose to put them in. And sometimes there's also just the simple mistakes of just learning to put the tags, fasten them to the back of the folders whereas some people will initially just lay them on top of the folders, and then the moment you start moving the folders around, all the tags fall right off. Yeah, if you can start on production, you can't find the paperwork in the kit. That is an awkward thing for a production assistant to explain to an AD why the little tags fell off. So probably some training on there is good before you're put in that spot. And it gives them another opportunity to see the difference between a weekly time card and a daily time sheet, what a box rental form is. Some of these documents that as a set PA, they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to. Because I don't think you were around for the daily timesheets. I'm not familiar with that. No, I mean, I know some shows where we did it um, as a collection methodology, um, but uh, I didn't know there was an official form for it. If there, no, if, no, if, we were still doing it because you had us at the trucks and you would have us over the radio give you the out times. So the only difference from our time of that, which would be calling you over the radio and telling you grip is out at, would be a sheet that they fill out. There's oh, no yeah, other no, no. difference. Like I said, that's, so yeah, I've been on shows where we did that as well. Yeah. And your best is you have them, uh, you have a carbon copy so that they can keep one and then you keep one. Yeah, it, it, no that's how it is now. There's a white copy and a yellow copy. And when we're on set and the AD is at the, is at wherever they are in the trailer working on the PR, we'll take photos of the daily timesheets on our phone and we'll send them over so they can have an official copy to look at. Yeah, there's no difference between when we did it verbally over the radio to you versus now except that the payroll company has the document, that's it. That, uh, so it's the other end, when we talk about the call sheet being how you start your day, your production report is the summary of what actually happened as everybody's in and out times. And yes, collecting those at the end of the night and getting them delivered. Yeah, we didn't have cell phones to send over little pictures. That's a new, uh, that's a new twist on it. But otherwise, the process sounds pretty similar. Yeah, so this way, by the time we're done at the working trucks and we make our way over to the trailer, the initial production report is essentially done, ready to be printed and copied and sent off to the office. Chuck, there's another term you referenced, pushing the call. Let's add some more detail to that for our folks who are not familiar with being on set. So at a certain point close to the end of the day, the final call sheet for the next day will be approved and printed out and there'll be like a hundred copies on set ready to go. But then you're down to that final scene, that final shot, and it ends up taking a lot longer than expected. 
which means it's affecting what is uh, all the union people's turnaround time for the next day, which is a required amount of downtime before they can work again without it being a huge financial penalty on the production. Not to mention with uh, cutting into an actor's turnaround, you cannot do that without the actor's approval or permission to do it. So in order to give them the required amount of turnaround time, we end up having to adjust the next day's call time by pushing it forward to a later time to accommodate the full turnaround time. And the PAs will be doing that on set in the moment, often at wrap, as they're handing out the call sheets, they're writing on them with a red Sharpie with the pushed call time. Chris, have you had that experience since you've uh, graduated the program? No, not since graduating, but we did do it at BA boot camp. So, uh, I mean, all the, all these indie, sh you know, shoots, they, they just, they'll go 14 hours and you know, you'll be back the next day whenever. So I haven't had the fortune of doing that yet. We need I to get Chris on the set. <laughs> yeah. Well, so let's then talk about what day two of boot camp looks like. Day two is the big day because we start out with the radio training. It's the longest section. Everything from just how the two-wire surveillance mic works and changing the battery on the back to the correct way to talk on a radio, keeping your answers to three words or less, why we use channel two, when to go to channel four, uh, what are the common other channels for the, uh, the other departments, like channel three being transportation because they are the 399. Uh, we give them call sheets. We go outside of the stage. We, where we train, there is a mostly abandoned cul-de-sac. So we can spread them out pretty far and they won't be on top of each other. We split them up depending on how many people are taking the camp that weekend. We will have anywhere between two to four of us there to make them nice small groups and we will give them multiple call sheets and we will spend a good amount of time asking them questions where the answers are on the call sheets and listening to how, how efficiently they respond. Actually, first of all, people think it's a speed test first, but it's not. It's making sure that they give the right answer, making sure that they're speaking with confidence because sometimes you'll find a name like Kanzanari and you're not sure how that's pronounced and you say it in a way that makes it sound like you're not even sure that's the correct answer. So we want to listen for that as well. It's, it's a real uh, confidence booster to what they're doing. But also at that point, we get an extremely good sense of who it is that's probably ready for set and who it is that's going to need more time and more training before they're ready or maybe will never be ready. It's a hell of a program, Skid. <laughs> well, tell us more about the hell part of it then, Lee. Where, where do you go from there from radio training? <laughs> well, okay. So there's a couple of things that frighten the crap out of them. Other than me, it would be called call-out, shout-out, which are the terms that CEPIs hear over the radio given to them by the first AD that are repeated in a volume that fills the stage, fills the room, fills the area. It's not a scream. You're not being murdered. You are raising the volume of your voice so that you can tell the surrounding crew what is happening at camera. So we give a document called the call out shout out. And then on day two, 
We make them go outside with their radios in their simulated quote unquote lockup. And we repeat terms over the radio for them to get used to how the volume must be raised in this simulation because we don't have crew sound surrounding them. So they have to be simulated to, and when their volume is low, I push them harder. And if their volume is not enough, I come close to them. I don't use the radio. I show them how it's done by a female of five foot two. And if I can do it, they can do it. So we push them and we push them and we push them. And then when we're happy with the volume that we hear, we're done. As with most of the program, it's a great deal of confidence. So if they don't understand what this shot moves us means, which we go over on day one, but they don't have the document with them when they're outside on day two. So if they don't understand what it means, they're more likely to just sort of mumble it or wonder what it is they're saying. And what Lee does is give them that sort of drill sergeant attitude to show the confidence that they need to have so that the crew respects and responds to what it is they're shouting out. If they come over the radio and they say something that's not on the call-out shout-out list, we harp on them as though an AD would. So an example, if an AD says background action over the radio and you, the ADs, hear background action from the set PAs being repeated, what happens if they say action? What are the possible repercussions of danger that can happen if a set PA says action instead of omitting action and just saying background? So if there's an actor nearby within vicinity and here's a set PA say background action, is the actor going to move? And if the actor does move, whose fault is that? Yeah, you bring up a good point. You know, for example, we say background, so the background starts moving before the actor goes, so you don't see a lot of um, herky-jerky movement at the top of a scene from the folks who are not the, the focus. But yes, by miscommunicating that over the radio or not understanding the difference between those two terms or how that works, you do risk uh, causing serious consequences for your film set. Same with, uh, Chuck, what you were saying about this shot moves us. That's a cue to the crew that as soon as this shot is done, we're going to be going to another set or another stage, depending on what kind of move we're talking about. That's an opportunity to do valuable pack-up time and prep for the go that everything you have standing by to help out a shot or the next shot can start getting ready for the move as well. It's a two-page document, front and back side, letter size, but it's all those document details that are important. All those things that you guys would say, the first AD over the radio or a second AD on a splinter unit over the radio to us, that we have to inform the crew at a distance. All of those are listed on this document. And then the document is kept by them. So if they need it to refer back to, if they hear background action, they now know no action, only background. If they hear lock up or lock it up guys, that is not something to repeat and here's why. But they get that document. We generate that document, we give them that document and they keep that document. I was wondering with uh, Christopher, if he heard PA shouting out lock it up on his sets uh no i i not not that i can remember but i we did have one pa on the last one and he his his uh delay was we'd, we'd start rolling and he would be calling out actions while we were mid take <laughs> and i don't know how he got i don't know how that went down like but it was it was quite funny to watch but yeah uh nobody's had, not that i can remember i said lock it up or anything out loud <laughs> 
So does reviewing the terms and such as then that, that wraps the day in the program or there's more? No, there's more. We actually take a, that sometimes leads into lunch. Sometimes that leads into the radio inventory training. Now, Skid, you, when you were doing this, you probably were more familiar with it being commonly referred to as walkie bitch. But <laughs> it is a term I've heard. It's never a term that I used on my sets. Yeah. But yes, I've heard that. It, it has gone out of date. You, deal, you do still sometimes hear it, but I would say much more common nowadays is you hear radio inventory. It's the PA in charge of the radio inventory. Or radio PA. Or the radio PA. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's, that's what we call the individual with this unique and challenging responsibility on my sets. I'm almost but positive. we do train why we called it walkie bitch. It wasn't because of the person. It was because of the job responsibilities. It's a huge challenge to keep track of all those radios. So we have that training and we still have the entire afternoon, which is talking specifically about office PA, uh, office PA responsibilities, including making the sides for the next day. We still have to give them background training, which Lee does pretty thoroughly. Vouchers, skins, the background breakdown. We have an activity with simulated vouchers where they do a background breakdown based off these simulated vouchers. We uh, talk about actually being on set, showing them with, with pictures, identifying the various crew people, identifying the various, it sort of gets more into like, because we're so hard on them for a day and a half to show that of course there is a lot of fun to be had on set. Obviously if you're working on you know, a Christopher Nolan Dark Knight film, yeah, you're working with Batman. That's kind of cool. But we also talk about that even on, on those sets, there are good PAs that will stand out as good PAs, and there are screw-up PAs that will stand out more as PAs you don't want to keep on the set when you reduce your numbers down. You have fun while doing the job. You don't do the job while having fun. We talk about uh, base camp and working with the AD or usually the DGA trainee who's handling base camp. Uh, we talk about the way that we do our time cards, what we were just talking about with the military time of tenths of an hour so that we fill out our time cards correctly, not in any kind of an AM, PM form, and what that means so you can figure out your own how many hours you, you're getting paid for. And ultimately leading to our finale, which is getting you on with set, getting you a job and knowing how to talk to the people that are on set so that you can get the other jobs after that first one and ultimately get to where it is you want to be. And all this stuff is interactive. They fill out the time cards. They fill out the vouchers. They look at the skins. They fill out the breakdown. They sort and categorize they look at the PR to see where the background information is listed on the PR. They do all the work. We talk about it, but we give them everything that they need to do the simulation of the job. We monitor them. We guide them. We assist them. We're there, but they are doing the work. You know, the one quibble that I'll weigh in is that although it was constantly referred to as military time, putting the time where the hour is 1 to 24 or higher if you're working that kind of day, and then you use a point to say how many percentages that's not really military time that's more like lawyer time how lawyers similarly credit on a six-minute schedule military time is you know 1300 1400 1430 that sort of thing is technically what we used to do in the military just a small quibble well, again tracking the hours is similar to a military clock 
Um, but uh, yeah, like for example, if you work past midnight, work past one or two in the morning, we start using 25 or 26 and never once when I was in the military did we have a time clock that, that 2,500 on it, I'll tell you that. We change the language at camp. We call, so we, we call it modified military time. That's we call that's it good. movie military time. We call it movie modified time, all different things, but we actually don't call it military time. Well, and I think getting people to think in sort of military terms, you know, the way things run on a film set and the way things run in the military is very similar with very similar goals in the end, keeping people focused on the mission and keeping everything moving forward. So no, any idea that we uh, get people in that mindset, I think is a good one. So Chris, what was your takeaway from your time at PA Bootcamp? Oh, it was a crash course to say the least. Um, you definitely have a good cop, bad cop vibe, uh, which is helpful. But yeah, it is ran like uh, a military. I, I mean, at least a very like transition from like someone who hasn't been in the military. It's a very uh, easing process into into that kind of uh, environment. But uh, I thought it was amazing. I, I learned pretty much everything I need to learn to get on a, a, a set. So it's definitely been a beneficial uh, experience for me. And Chris, how did you find out about the program? Uh, so I actually was working at a grocery store and a customer came through my line and it was two customers. One was crafty and one was a set PA. And I asked them like what all the food was for. And then one was saying, Oh, I'm, I'm crafty. And the other one was like, Oh, I'm a set PA. And then I told them I was interested in doing that and they told me about the program. So I checked it out and I signed up for the next uh, session. So, yeah. How often are you guys doing sessions of PA Bootcamp? We aim to do it once a month in Los Angeles. It has to be flexible because we do travel outside based on requests from productions, from film commissions. So we do go around the United States into what is more of a private boot camp, which is why we don't advertise them on our site for people to sign up. And usually January we found to be a lean month. So that's, that's a month we will generally take off and do our first boot camp of the year in February. The goal is once a month, except that we have to be flexible with our schedule because we go out of town to train the locals in the different cities, states, and countries that we do. But it, the aim is once a month. And she said occasionally a film commission or a specific production will bring you out to train PAs in their area or PAs on a specific shoot. Yeah, so we try to have the Los Angeles boot camp monthly, but because of these outside requests, where we'll end up training for a film commission or we'll end up training at a college somewhere else in the United States, we can't post our schedule too far in advance because we don't want to post for people to sign up and then all of a sudden these outside groups are wanting the same weekend that we're scheduled to have the Los Angeles camp because often with them, it's a lot harder for them to move to another weekend just because we've already scheduled something here. And what are the fees for PA bootcamp? The pricing is student and then non-student is how we do our first breakdown. If we find that the month is slow based on our history, we will do discounts. So we will put out a group on or if they're connected to somebody who's connected, who's connected on a show that I know, a show that Chuck knows, a show that an AD knows us, we will discount them based on they're filling out the form saying, I know Skid, I know Judd, I know, and then that would discount them further. We're talking about a couple of hundred dollars for the two days of training. 
Um, you know, you know it's, uh, it could be a concern or a critique that folks who are, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, living hand to mouth sometimes, chasing this, you know, $100, $100 a day or whatever they're being paid as production. Certainly people are making more than $100 a day now, right? It has finally caught up to where PAs are making a, a much better rate. I, I've, I've been working in this business a lot of years and I've seen the PA rates go, go up by pennies. And then all of a sudden, a couple of years ago, it seemed that the PA rate was more in the vicinity of 12 to $14 an hour. There has been a lot of abuse of PAs, but I'm glad to hear that things are more in line with uh, pay standards on that. Of course, there's still the flat rate jobs that are out there that are more $50 for the day, and you don't know how long the day is going to be, or $100 for the day. And it's like, don't worry, everybody's making $100 a day. And on your 16th hour, that still doesn't feel good. We try really hard to persuade people to understand that when you're on a show, day playing for three days, even if it's intermittently, you know, throughout the week, a Tuesday, a Friday, it, you make it back. It's not hard to make back the investment that you put toward working through PA boot camps process. Well, I could see an advantage of knowing the information that you guys are talking about before you actually get on set. And with a large pool of folks who are competing for this kind of work, the idea that you have a little bit of an edge, that you know what's going on, to make it more likely that you're going to pick up more work. I know we all learned the hard way um, and perhaps we're lucky to keep the jobs we did, you know, but it's pretty clear that with a small investment, you can really stack those cards in your favor as far as getting those jobs to come your way. Well, you know, with the uh, increase of wage, it's it's makes it even more necessary to have those skills. If you don't, you know, if you're getting paid more and you and you don't have the knowledge, then it's it seems a bit of a you're more of a disposable person. But if you show up, you're getting paid higher, I guess these days, and you know your stuff, then you're you're definitely best. It's better to succeed, I'd say. And I, I'd say the program was uh, it definitely a foot in the door for me. Yeah, I've been wanting to get into film since like I was 13, so, but not knowing how. And then now doing the program and then now this like last year on set, I've, I've been able to, to figure out how about doing that, you know, definitely a foot in the door. He would know. He paid the money. He went through the program and then he ended up on a set. So he would be our prime suspect here because he did exactly what people are hesitating to do. They go onto social media, they go onto blogs, they go onto other websites, and they read negative, they read positive, they read positive, they read negative. They take what they want out of it. Yeah. Chris decided to go. Let's use that in the segue of talking about actually finding work, with or without PA boot camp. I'll tell my story. When I had worked on that three-week Jeff Fahey quickie, the contract, earlier, that was my first job, I met a guy who was working on that as location manager, who introduced me to a crew that set up for another movie. And so my first paying job was on But I'm a Cheerleader, which we shot out of town for a couple of months, I believe. On that job, I was doing a lockup out in the middle of the desert at a small house, and who lived there knew an assistant director in Los Angeles and introduced me. And through that, I was able to get some of my other paying work back in town. So it's just sort of knowing what I knew and then doing the job I did and then meeting people and sort of networking that way led to the career that I had. So you see there was a lot of luck in the connections that you made along the way. Uh, with me, it was through Bad Guys, the, uh, an assistant director who was on that who quit off of that 
went on to do five very low budget movies for HBO that I don't even think HBO acknowledges anymore, but it was five movies with Stan Winston and this AD remembered me from, from bad guys and called me and it was five projects right in a row. And certainly by the time I got through with all of that, I was a much more experienced PA than I was in the beginning. Lee, you certainly were in the deep end of the pool on your first job in Oregon, but where did that lead for you? I started working on features immediately from there. They were all low budget, no budget back then, what it was considered low budget, no budget. So the AD team that saw me doing everything that I could to make it work brought me on to their next feature. And I just sort of stayed with them. The AD team didn't really drop me just because they saw I was trying to make so much of an effort. As many mistakes as I was making, I was still making an effort to make those mistakes. So they kept me and that was it. And then I just stayed. I did one in Coos Bay, Oregon again, because the film commission had raised the money. They had uh, enough for another feature and I stayed. That was it really. You know, I think there's a key point here that yes, it can be lucky when you make the contacts or someone you know to get the job, but really you need to be prepared to be on your best performance when that luck strikes, because that's how you're going to impress people and get picked up again. Even more than luck, it ends up being who you know. And more important than who you know, people want to want to work with you. And that's how you'll get work in the future. Yeah, we encourage that. We encourage at PA Bootcamp for them to not just provide the skill, but the personality. And we give them a very specific division as to how much personality an AD team wants and how much work ethic an AD team wants, depending upon the show. So for a TV series, they want a certain amount of personality and a certain amount of work ethic for a low budget, no budget reality commercial. They want a different amount of personality and a different amount of work ethic for a big feature like pirates. They want a different amount of work ethic and a different, you can't bring one set a personality and work ethic to every show. It's not gonna work because the environment changes drastically. You have to change with the environment. So what we do is tell them what the environment is that they're gonna expect and give it to them. And we talk about how sometimes you could have an assistant director that you get along with very well on one show and then you get onto another show where the chemistry, the needs of the show is different, the 150 crew member personalities are different and all of a sudden everything you're doing is stepping wrong with this AD to where this AD decides not to continue bringing you on to a show. And then the next show they bring you on again and everything's great again. But that's just part of the nature of the business. We also cover how an AD will bring you on to three or four shows and that same AD will be friendly to you on three or four shows. Now, the AD hasn't changed, but the show has. So that same AD who brings you onto your past group of work brings you on a new one and their behavior changes. All of a sudden they are, they've gone from the friendly AD who you work with for four shows to this tyrant. What happened? What did I do wrong? You did nothing. It's the AD adjusting to the environment and you have to go with it. Well, I think in learning to adjust to the environment, even just more general terms, having that knowledge ahead of time as far as when things change and what that means for you is going to be truly valuable. Chris, where do you see going with your career? Uh, well, right now I've been working on a lot of shorts, um, student films, stuff like that, uh, doing either production assist, set production assistant or, but um, 
and then some camera assisting jobs as well. Um, I may or may not be getting on a show soon, knock on wood. I don't want to jinx it, but as a set PA, so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, just uh, I've, I've quit my day job so I can pursue this full time. So uh, yeah, that's it. Just going to keep on working. Well, good luck to you, Chris and Chuck and Lee. Good luck with the program. Um, what are your future plans? We wish you could come see it. <laughs> well, I'll let you know the next time I'm back out in Los Angeles. Maybe I'll give you guys a cameo. Although these days, kids who are PA, I don't think they've seen the movies I worked on anymore. We're starting to put those kind of years behind us, Lee. People still talk about Arrested Development, though. <laughs> so I, I could say I was on that with Chuck. I learned everything I know from Chuck on Arrested Development. I know Seabiscuit. I know Big Fish. I know some of your guys' stuff. So, you know, it's still relevant films and stuff like that. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. If I was hiring, we would certainly give you a crack on my set. So <laughs> they, uh, flattering won't hurt you. <laughs> well, good luck to you, Chris. And good luck, uh, Lee and Chuck, with the program. I hope it continues to grow. Thanks. I hope you can come out and see it sometime, even though you're so far away. Well, next time I make it out to Los Angeles, I'll check your schedule, see if uh, I can drop by and see how you guys are doing. Or you end up with one of those programs out here on the East Coast. Let me know. Maybe I'll drop in there. Thanks, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Ed. Thank you. That's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. If you're so inclined, please take a moment and leave us five stars and a comment on iTunes fan of the show check out our facebook page at podcast below the line for twitter and instagram you can find us at pod below the line and if you've got feedback send email to skid s-k-i-d at below the line one word dot biz that's b-i-z thanks to curtis five for our music and thanks to john juan for our logo fan of the logo we've got merch you can get the logo inscribed on t-shirts mugs and stickers just go to redbubble.com and search for once again below the line next episode we're talking about a micro budget indie film called own worst enemy and the challenges of do-it-yourself filmmaking join us in two weeks